0: All right well sounds good well thanks so much for the opportunity to be with you all tonight and I um, have created a Google doc with some links and let's see this is a really this is my first time to to do this zoom meeting so this is cool and um, I created a shortened URL for this so if you want to go to that G O O. G L slash and then a bunch of random characters there. Um, you can you can go to these. And what I was thinking I would go ahead and talk about was a little bit of educational technology trends. But we can certainly take this different directions if you all would like to. But um, I basically put put on a few different links here, and we can um, we can kind of kind of go through these and then see see what questions you have or or where where you'd like to to go with this.
1: Then let's uh, it, when you click, we go where you go. We can, we have no control of our of our machines, right. right? So you just you just click whatever uh, you want to go to, and we'll
0: listen. All right, good. sounds good. So when it comes to educational technology trends, um, I really like the Horizon Project. Um, the New Media Consortium has been doing the Horizon reports for a number of years, and they I think maybe started out with the higher education edition, and then added a K twelve edition. And so, um, I've known several people who've been a part of of, of their projects and doing their research. Um, their publications most recently they did a two thousand and fourteen higher education edition. Um, I like you know the k 12 and there's quite a bit of overlap between those. Um, but uh, this is probably um, the, the best. You know kind of forecast that I've seen for trends and things like that that we're going to see in educational technology and I pulled up um, the the higher education uh, report and you know some of these things are uh, you know m- maybe maybe very obvious to you as far as what you've experienced and and what you're doing uh, or and maybe some of them aren't maybe some of them may maybe new but um certainly. You know, social media, uh, it's good, I think, that you guys are using Twitter. Uh, my mind is blown regularly by the fact that I'm learning almost, you know, basically every day from other teachers who are around the world. And in this class, it's its its great to have immediacy and a time to come together uh, face-to-face. And a course provides that kind of immediacy where you're focused on, you know, reading different assignments and and, do, and creating things and sharing things. But for me and for many other, other teachers, too, um, professional development can happen and does happen really all the time. It's, it's whenever you want to turn on your device. And this presents different challenges, right? There's challenges to turning off your device and, you know, choosing not to have your screen on. Um, but, um, I'll tell you a story. Um, one of my uh, favorite ebooks in, to, to, to look at in, um, the category of enhanced ebooks. So that would be an ebook that not only has images and text, but it also has recorded audio, is a book called Our Botok House. And, um, one of the other links that I've, I've got on here, um, was mentioned, and this is the mapping media, Uh, digital literacy framework. So I've been working on this for a couple years and um, if you click on ebook, each one of these has uh, definitions of what this is, you can see a suggested workflow for what you know you might do and students might do to create this. Different tools, but then my favorite example are the, uh, or my favorite part, are the examples. So the first one here is this book called Our Batak House uh, which was created by students in Indonesia. And let's see. I don't know if I can figure out how to move my my tabs here. How do I move my I don't know how. If I I've got my my tabs are being covered at the top of my screen.
1: Oh, 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 well. Wow.
0: Uh- oh no, I figured it out. I can drag it. I'm good. Okay, so it'll drag and go over. So here's the preview. This this particular one happens to be in the iTunes bookstore, but uh, a teacher named Jane Ross, who is in Jakarta, Indonesia, uh, started a project uh, called the um, Digital Backpack Classroom or the Backpack Classroom Series. And her husband is in the Batak tribe in Indonesia and started this project in part for cultural preservation to help preserve their language, but also as a digital literacy project. And there are, I think, maybe about seven books in this series. It just blows my mind that because of some connections, you know, through Twitter, um, I have you know, communicated with Jane and found out about this, and she's inspired, you know, teachers that I work with here in Oklahoma to create e-books, and, and I just love to share it. And it's, it's an example of such a powerful use of media because hearing these young kids uh, share in both the English language and the Botok language and being able to hear their voices—it's—it's it's transformative. It's different than just reading or just seeing the photographs. You know, those things are powerful, but being able to hear their voices is not something that we would typically be able to do in a book that we have in, in class or school. So that's a great example of an enhanced ebook, an example of a media product that can be created uh, with an iPad. Bless you. But it is also, um, I think, an example of the transformative power of social media and being plugged into other educators. So that is, without a doubt, one of the top trends that we all need to pay attention to is that social media is going to continue to transform the way we learn and transform the way we work as well. It presents challenges, but it also presents a lot of different opportunities. And we'll hear people talk about digital citizenship and the need to help students, you know, have a good digital footprint and practice, um, you know, basically good choices (laughs) because, you know, we do have Snapchat and things that will um, probably prevent some you know, things, photographs, from being part of a permanent record. But we've got companies like Facebook and, and Google and Twitter who would love for all of the little clicks that we do online to be recorded and become part of our history and to you know, be utilized for marketing. We've learned in the last year, thanks to Edward Snowden, that our government in the United States you know, tracks more uh, of our history and, and more of our interactions than we probably ever imagined. And so I'm not going to get sidetracked on that, but it's really important to recognize that social media presents great opportunities for learners, and I, I really think it pre- presents great opportunities for us to tell our story of what we're doing in education and to have a window into our classroom, just like this book, Our Batok House, provides a window into the the lives and, and the culture of um, folks living in Indonesia that in many ways might be different than than what we experience, but it can also be similar. I I love the part in the book where they say, well we're gonna go to the back kitchen now. And I when I share this with kids, do you have a back kitchen? And most of them will say, No, we don't and I'll say, Well I do, and I have this thing called a Weber grill on my back kitchen and that's where we, you know, cook out and it's the same it's not a Weber that they have, but that's where they, they cook with fire. So um, also in the NMC, you're going to see things about you know online, hybrid and collaborative learning. I like to think about that as blended learning. So we're blending face-to-face and synchronous learning with asynchronous learning and the chance to be able to build documents together, uh, share ideas, and learn um, when we are not in the same together at the same time, we may not be in the physical same place as we are in different places tonight. Uh, But, you know, that's huge. And a lot of the trends you see in the horizon report for higher ed, you know, either are present in K-12 or they're certainly coming to K-12. The other ones that I would point out in here um, that I think are significant um, underneath important developments in ed tech for higher ed are flipped classrooms, uh, 3D printing and games and gamification. Um, You know, I think we've been trying to flip the classroom for a long time. Um, In the uh, links that I have under um, mapping media, one of the things I, I think all teachers need to be able to create and share is a narrated slideshow or screencast. And, um, that is, you know, easier to create than live action video to take images and be able to narrate them and share them. That could be a PowerPoint or something else. There's a lot of different tools that you can use to do that. Um, I like, and I'm trying to think if I've got, if I've got a link to this here. Yeah. Um, Lodge Lodge McCammon is definitely a guy to know and watch when it comes to flipped learning. Um, his Facebook page uh, is called Fizz Education, and he does some fantastic things with flipped learning. And his model is not the narrated slideshow as much as it is kind of an old school. I've got some dr- student drawings here in the back talking in front of drawings that you do on a whiteboard or, you know, on a a paper easel or something like that. He calls them one-take videos. So there's some overlap in these in these products and these projects but you know the idea of using these tools to extend our classroom not limit the learning to the face to face time that we have which is so limited but being able to you know extend the learning provide you know videos have students create those it's gigantic I believe every single teacher at every grade level needs to have access to a space where we can publish video and share it. And you know YouTube is without a doubt my favorite space for doing that. Um, we are pioneers right now in d- digital literacy. Um, that's the reason why at the at the top of the mapping media site there's a there's a map there in the corner. Which is part of the Walled similar map. It's the most expensive map that the Library of Con—well, the most expensive item the Library of Congress ever purchased. They paid ten million dollars for it. It was discovered or rediscovered um, just, I think, in the last twenty years. I think it was in the early nineties. The first map to ever have the word America on the Western Hemisphere and to show. Uh, the entire Western Hemisphere surrounded by water. It was based on the voyages of Amerigo Vespucci, and people say that without the Waldseemüller map, you know the the Americas would be called the Columbias, you know, for Columbus instead of the Americas. But uh, and, and there's a great book called The Fourth Part of the World that. Um, I heard the author uh, speak at a Google summit. Um, it was a geo summit that took place in Maine, and so he was our speaker. And it really, really captivated me. To th- all of I'm a geographer and love you know geography and lots of things about it. But this map is just very, very compelling. And, and I just think we are charting the new territory today for digital learning. Um, the map hasn't been completely drawn. Lots of people know lots of things, but there's a lot of coastline that we don't, don't understand and we, we haven't seen yet that we're charting together. So I like that whole metaphor in cartography of, you know, discovering new lands. And of course, there were many people in the Americas prior to the arrival of Europeans, and there's lots of layers to, to talk about as far as that. It's a very eurocentric map obviously um but it does it, it was a map that brought together uh, the discoveries of ptolemy and and much of cartography that had been lost and brought those things together so there there's a book recommendation for you if, if you take nothing else um, you can check out toby lester's the fourth part of the world so i could talk more about um those those uh horizon report summaries. But um, what I went ahead and did was just put some of my own ideas as far as what I think um, are going to be trends. And I'll just talk about those real quick. And then uh, we'll open this up for some questions and see if you guys want to want to ask me some things. I think that an enduring trend is going to be students and teachers using media to show what you know and demonstrate what you can do. And that's what the Mapping Media Framework is really focused on. These are twelve different products that students can create and these can be co created, some of them in class, some of them as assignments. There's you know not all with iPads. You can do you know, all kinds of tools and things. But but we can create these to help others have a, have a window into our mind about what we know and what we can do. And I think that's going to be enduring. Um, digital portfolios are as well. Um, I'm going to click the link here under Resources for Digital Portfolios, and I will add this link um, underneath that showing what you can, what you can do with media. Um, I've just been working on, I teach a class for <clears throat> graduate students in Montana over video, from my living room every two weeks on Thursday nights and um, just wrote a a chapter for my fourth book uh, that's going to be about Three more of the mapping media products and it was a, the first chapter I wrote was about digital portfolios and I tried to use a metaphor thinking about the showboard that you show others and then the file cabinet where you house things. And so talking about, you know, the different tools and platforms, uh, the apps are gonna change, the platforms we use are gonna change, but the need to have a space where you can show what you know and your students can demonstrate what they know I think is very important and is going to be an enduring thing that we're going to be seeing in um, technology. So th- there's some you know different platforms, different examples that you can check out, and uh, also some different videos. The first video there with Kern Kelly, who is a tech director up in Maine, um, is talking a lot about his high school students who have been one-to-one for um in their middle schoolers have been one to one for twelve years because of Angus King and the Maine Learning Technology Initiative, their high schoolers for less time. But the ways in which they're using media to digitize their work and students are, are taking the responsibility for doing that, you know, not just in documents and, and things like that, but, you know, in choir, recording their voice and then putting those MP three files, you know, into their portfolio and doing a lot of things that are that are pretty exciting that we don't necessarily see lots of folks doing. Um, but I think we're going to see more and more of that. So that's definitely one of the trends that I would would highlight. Um, The next one I put on here was EdCamp, and I I actually put two links on there. I put the link to um, EdCamp OKC, which we just had last month here in Oklahoma City, and then the whole EdCamp wiki. EdCamp is a movement of unconferences that educators around the world are putting together it is not a traditional conference where vendors are involved uh, as, as sort of the main sponsors of it. You have some sponsorship with EdCamps, but what it's really about are teachers coming together, having conversations, and teaching each other. And so um, the EdCamp wiki, you know, lists uh, all of these that are coming up. You can see there's EdCamps, you know, this weekend on Saturday, uh, April 5th, in, in uh, Pennsylvania, Denmark, New York, Maryland, West Virginia, uh, New York, Illinois, and California. Uh, we just had one last weekend in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, we 've got a lot of, of teachers who are are getting interested in this because we don't it 's wonderful to have outside ideas and, and you know I make some of my money uh, every month usually by going and speaking in places where people pay me to come. but there is so much expertise within our organizations, within our schools within our communities. And I really love the whole EdCamp movement. I think it's part of the revolution that's happening in education, and it's important to not only know about it, I think, but to participate in it. So if you have not participated in an EdCamp, I encourage you to do that. And the great thing is, you know, I know we've got folks outside of, of Kansas in the Midwest. Uh, there's going to be an EdCamp somewhere relatively close to you, uh, almost certainly, that will be coming up in you know, the next three to six months. So check that wiki and, and see. Uh, they're always free, but you usually have to register in advance, and sometimes registration does fill up. I know the one in Kansas City has been uh, pretty popular, and um, you know it's. I think it is capped at 300, and so they they're in different places. Kansas City has theirs, I think, at a museum. Uh, we've had ours at um, schools that um, have hosted us. Uh, we're going to be doing something called a play date. Um, that is going to take place and it's very similar to EdCamp um, but the Playdate model started in Chicago last year and their man- their mantra is no presenters, no agendas, just playing. And the, t- the teachers who started this in Chicago came back from conferences with so many tools and, and new strategies and things they needed to-, to-, to research that they felt overwhelmed. When am I going to play with these? And so they decided to create a conference called Playdate and this has now been franchised for free so there have been some in california and there's some you know taking place in other places and it's it's similar to ed camp i think because it's free it's a grassroots educator initiated professional development and it it it, um, reflects some different realities uh, including the fact that we we have lots of expertise around us uh, we need time to collaborate i i have like zero time in my day almost to collaborate with the other teachers in my building And so it's really important to have other opportunities to be able to collaborate. And so ed camps and playdates and things like that um, can give us a chance to do that. So two more big ones. Um, I want to talk a little bit about STEM. Uh, This is my STEM curriculum website. It's just STEM.WestFryer.com. And uh, STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. We've heard probably that as a buzzword our school district, Yukon Public Schools, is very unique in the, in the United States at this point, as far as I know, having dedicated STEM teachers that are teaching all the students um, in our, in our schools. So we, we have two, four, five elementaries. Uh, we have about 600 kids at our, at our school. And every student comes to STEM just like they come to PE, music, art, library, and the counselor. And so um this has been a unique program we're in our third year and um I think you we're just going to continue to hear more about STEM for for various reasons. One, we're a very technologically um you know, rich society today in, in the in the United States. We've got technology everywhere. We hear people talk about workforce skills, but for me STEM offers opportunities to teach the way that I want to teach, which is in an integrated way where i 'm connecting science and i 'm connecting math and i 'm connecting technology and engineering design but i 'm also using writing i 'm having students write across the curriculum and we 're using a hands on approach to teaching uh, we 're having students build things in teams and doing collaborative learning I mean this is the way that I want to teach and STEM really has, has given permission for that kind of teaching and that that kind of learning to take place. So the other links that I included um, that are on the STEM uh, website is um, I put a link to code.org. If you're not familiar with this, we had the first hour of code last November where students around the country were encouraged to code for at least an hour at school. But a a wonderful collection of resources were put together, and code.org is free. It's a lot like Khan Academy. Where you as a teacher can register your class and get an enrollment code and then students can type that in and not have to have an email address to get an account and then be able to log in. So as an example, I guess since we can do this live, I'll, I can do this. I'm going to go to code.org and I'm going to log into my account. And we can actually check out um, what's my, what my students have been doing. I just went ahead and created two different classes. So I put my my fourth graders in, in one class, and I put my fifth graders in another. And I love the fact that I can reset their passwords. Uh, I'll click on Recent Class Activity. And um, I can see what they're doing. So... Uh, 22 hours ago, Noah, who was not in class, <laughs> was on code.org, I guess at his house or somewhere else, and I can actually click on this and see the code that he tried. So he was that uh, uses plants versus zombies, and it doesn't look like he assembled his blocks very completely for, for this level. Um, so I, so that's not going to be a very impressive one to run. Um, But let's let's take a look. He finished this one. So he had that was something that he had tried. He finished this one. And wow. okay. so look at look at the codes that he put together. So let's run the run the program. And so he was. I think he had a few excess codes there, but he was making different patterns. This was an experiment one. But, you know, being able to do that and to, and to see, you know, what students are doing and, and, and track their progress uh, is awesome. So if you're not um, familiar with Code.org, I hope you are now, and you'll recommend that to other teachers. You'll take a look at it. It's a completely free resource. I've used that this year to introduce Scratch to my students. So last week, we spent the week on Code.org. Um, this week, we are doing Scratch. Scratch is a free program that MIT and their lifelong kindergarten group created, and And my students are learning to code. And um, in fact, if you go, I I use a Twitter account for my class. It's just IES STEM. And so um, today after school, I I tweeted a couple things uh, that students had done. So I said, um, here was a great maze starter project by fourth grader Ben. So one of my fourth graders this afternoon created this um, project where he was making a maze and we'll see if it's going to load up here. So we hit the green, the green arrow to start, and we use the arrow keys to navigate our way through. This um, was what they call a starter project on the website. So this first level was actually already there. But what Ben did was he then um, clicked on the... The project to see inside and see the code, and now this is what he did. Now wait a minute. This is when he was doing it earlier. I wonder if he changed his code. He had made the ball smaller and he had moved it inside. So it may be that I don't know. I'm not sure if he if he got something moved, but um, that it was working when he left class today. So maybe we made some other adjustments. But um, we can click inside to see his code. And so for the level that he did, um, we can. Anyway, you can click on it and see, but that's awesome. Scratch is free. Um, it does not run on iPads. It, it runs in the browser on Mac and Windows, computer, Windows computers, but it is a great resource and, and is really phenomenal. The last thing I'd say on, on coding, and we're not doing all coding. We're building rockets and doing kitchen chemistry and other stuff, too, but I have a page for iPad coding. There is are several different free apps for the iPad, and the one that we've used the most is called Hopscotch. And I went ahead and uh, wrote and published a free ebook this last year um, called Hopscotch Challenges. And that's available for uh, free download from Amazon, um, and you can also just download it from Dropbox. But um, anyway, it's just a set of challenges that students can do to draw pictures and art using math formulas, and then also create some simple collision games, because it's on the iPad, it uses the accelerometer, and allows for you know students to make games that... Uh, you can actually play by moving the iPad, which is which is very cool, which is different than what you can do with Scratch. So last thing I will mention that I've got a, a link to up here is one-to-one computing. I have a link to this amazing map uh, of one-to-one um, uh, classrooms in Iowa. Iowa is one of these states that because of strong leadership, both in, in their schools and I think in, in their state government, um, and because of innovation and collaboration, has exploded in the last five years with one-to-one. So this map shows you um, the schools that are using uh, Mac laptops, PC laptops, iPads, um, Android or Windows tablets, Chromebooks, netbooks, or a combination of platforms for one-to-one computing. And there are a bunch of one-to-one schools in kansas we got a few in oklahoma there's a few you know i mean texas is a big place there's a there's they're scattered here and there but every single school is going to be one-to-one at some point in the future meaning every student is going to have a mobile internet connected device that not only allows them to consume and access content but also publish it and share it And Iowa is just one of these states of of the United States that I think is at the forefront. And that map really, really demonstrates that. So um, they've got some good resources on their website about crafting a vision and creating a vision for one-to-one computing, engaging the community, um, conducting audits to Reddit to uh, assess your readiness and assess your progress in, in that, and then, you know, looking at funding and sustainability. So... I've had a chance to write some grants and work with some school districts in the last decade um, that have been involved in one-to-one, and I know we're going to be all moving in that direction. at some point. We've got a cart of iPads here in my classroom, and students are bringing some devices to school, but at some point it's, it's going to be normal for every student to have that device and to use it as a regular part of their learning, I'm sure in the way that you do um, as as students you know, at the university. So, I think I've talked for 29 minutes and 57 seconds. That's 30 minutes, so I may have overspent over, uh, spent my, my time, but I'll uh, stop there and open it up for questions and be glad to, to take this whatever direction you all would like. If we want to, or we may we may be out of time. I'm not sure.
1: Well, I'm sure they'd like to give up their moderation and book reviews, but you guys go ahead if you got any questions, ask them. What's a the STEM stand for? The STEM
0: curriculum yes. stand for what? Yes, good question. Um, STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. So uh, we've got quite a bit of discussion in the United States about the need for um, pe- for students to study computer science, to study engineering, to study math, uh, to study those fields. And so there's an emphasis now on Uh, preparing students for STEM, but also just getting kids excited about STEM so that they'll take those classes in especially high school that will get them ready for college and, you know, encourage more to to look at STEM. There's also STEAM, which is putting the arts into STEM that some people like. I believe in creativity. I think we should be doing lots of creative stuff, but I also think we shouldn't change our acronyms every year because when we do that, other people look at us and we're like, is that really important? You just you told me it was STEM last year and now it's STEAM. So I I've, I like the STEM act acronym um but uh it's something that you know more states are are uh, writing grants for and we get we have businesses that are partnering with schools um to try to help students develop not only those specific content skills but but integrated skills and and skills like problem solving skills like computational thinking which is something that scratch and other coding um languages will really emphasize that will probably serve students well wherever they go um you know, in, in their careers. Oh,
1: that's a great. Yeah, I never knew the Center for Engineering and the Science and the Math. That's a great. So, and then we'll start from elementary school and... We do. Through
0: high, we do. Yeah. We we have seven elementaries, and right now there's only one that has a STEM teacher. But both of our four or five campuses, and we have we have two. So our, our district, I think, is about... Uh, Gosh, I don't even know. I'm gonna say about 7,000 students, something like that. I I should have that number in my head. But we've got seven elementaries that feed to two middle schools, that feed to one sixth grade, one middle school, one high school. So at at both four or five campuses, all the students are, are taking STEM. But we are very unique. In fact, here's one more link, and I'll add this to our Google Doc. But I just started a uh, last month a website and a, a Google Hangout web series called STEM Seeds because one of the things I really want myself as a STEM teacher are ideas for lessons. And so we started a map uh, showing where our STEM teachers are. You know, here in our metro area, we've only got t- um, two different districts right now that I know of that are are um, doing full-time STEM teachers, but we've got more. That are looking at that, and then more that integrate STEM as well. So I'll add that link underneath STEM.
1: Oh, that's okay. Thanks. Yeah, um, Hawida's husband uh, actually is a nuclear engineering professor at a new tech, technological university outside of Cairo that was started by. Nobel laureates at MIT and also in Egypt, so wow. STEM awesome. is is kind of new to her because we don't really, we don't have that. You're right, it's unique, and it would be wonderful if, frankly, every state had that, but um, in any event, I think she'd be very interested to hear more about that later, so I think she'll be looking at that, as well as her husband, because awesome. there... That new university that they started, that's what it's for, STEM. The STEM university only. It's a technical university.
0: I will travel to Egypt, so you just let me know. <laughs> yeah, sure.
1: I, I can have you give up a presentation there. We have to set up this. I,
0: would, I, would, <laughs> I will
1: take your email.
0: I would love You're to. Serious? Yeah, we'll, ex- we'll exchange information. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I am serious.
0: No, I am too. I, I went to Cutter uh, two years ago to their um, to the Cutter Academy. Uh, you know, as far as media, and it's a it's a wild world that we live in. But the connections that we have, both virtual and face to face, and it's all about networking. I've learned this as an adult. They didn't teach me this in in school to say, pay attention to networking because networking will open up doors for you that your credentials and your degrees will not. So um, I. Uh, I'm very passionate about STEM, and I really think that getting kids... I mean, for me, the most rewarding thing that's happened at school is when a kid, a child will leave like this was the best day ever. You know, there's all kinds of things that happen with discipline and whatever, but I mean, there was a student today, literally who left after doing scratch saying, this was the best day ever. Right. So when kids are that excited about what they've done in class and it just warms your heart and it, it helps you know that it's all worth it because they're loving learning. And, um, I think that, uh, you know, STEM is a part of that. There's a lot of pieces to that puzzle, but uh, STEM can be a part of that puzzle. So.
1: Okay, we, I will take your email. So, And my husband is coming soon. Next Thursday he will be here. So, Awesome. Uh, yeah. So will... All right. <laughs>
0: yeah. Any other questions you all would like to ask about anything?
1: Sean, that, well, I can't believe you're not asking something. This is his area. He talked <laughs> about code.org last semester. Every time yeah. he does something, it's on coding. So <laughs> what have you got to say, Sean?
0: You're on the spot. <laughs> He's got to turn, he turn off. There you go. He got uh, I don't really have any questions, but... Uh yeah, uh, I like the
3: hopscotch for the iPad, and uh, one of the things I also saw is Snap. Uh, that's through Berkeley instead of MIT, oh, okay. and that, that is uh, not Flash based.
0: So it's like—is it—is it a block-based um, coding? Yeah,
3: it's almost exactly like uh, Scratch, except that it's not Flash based.
0: Okay, cool.
2: I guess I have a question. Yes. Sort of. Um, I uh, when we did our research topics or not the trends topics last week, I added STEM to one of those. Um, something my dad's very passionate about as a science and math teacher, right. uh, former. And um, and one of the things I found was uh, kind of like you mentioned how they're adding arts into that. Um, what is your I think what the, some of the research I found talked about: Do we do we take STEM out of the liberal arts colleges or, or the liberal arts education? Do we add it back in? Do we do we do we um, you know integrate them together? Uh, you know.
0: I think a lot of it is about integration, and you know this is this becomes more difficult as you move up the food chain of education into, into, high, into secondary high school and into college, because we tend to be very siloed and think of ourselves in in discrete content areas. In fact, in the worst case, you know you could you could have a teacher who says, "I teach math." no you don 't you teach kids, you teach students, and um, we have artificial boundaries, but you know in content areas, I think one of the most important things that the STEM movement can do for us is to help us integrate learning and find connections between things and So um, some of my best classes that I ever had in high school were, were interdisciplinary. I had a few of those in college, not as many. Um, I, I think that STEM really invites that kind of learning. And so I don't think that the STEM movement is just about another course or another department. I think it's um, my friend Brian Crosby, who was on the STEM Seeds uh, show um, a couple weeks ago, he calls STEM a culture. You know, it's a way of thinking about. Uh, learning where you're solving problems and you're collecting data but you are you know writing about that and y- you're doing it in an inquiry based way that it it's more it's more than just going to the computer lab doing word problems and collecting data it it's really a, a way of approaching learning from a from a project based and a problem based learning standpoint it can be um, and so
2: it can it, philosophy, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, just being a higher, create more creative thinker when it comes to these technical subjects?
3: Well,
0: yeah, and I, and I think not shying away from the math and the engineering and the science, uh, recognizing that we can bring experts into our classrooms, um, that we are all going to be learners, and that we've got ways to uh, collect and analyze data and, you know, to, You know, we think about doing language arts or doing writing. Well, there's all kinds of ways that we do writing. You know, in the sciences, and so I think that STEM gives us opportunities to bridge some of those content area silos that are traditional in education. So people are wrestling with it, and people here. I mean, I've had folks ask me about the standards. Well, how are we going to make it all the same? And how are we going to? One of one of the big things we need to realize is a high quality education is not a standardized education. A high quality education is a differentiated, customized education. And so we we are going to have standards and we're going to have tests. But I, I think that in the past, we've gotten really hung up on trying to say, well, we need everybody to have this experience. And I think you know, techno- one of the affordances of technology is allowing us to customize things to a greater degree. And so, you know, STEM is not going to be everybody's thing. Everybody is not going to love um, is not going to love STEM, but. You know, the culture of STEM is, is kind of hard to resist, I think, if it's pulled off well, where it's very hands-on, it's very contextual. You know, students aren't asking, when are we ever going to use this? I mean, it's obvious. We're building a rocket, you know, that we're launching next week. Um, you know, as an example, it's, it, it's, it's not, uh, you know, only abstract and separated from the real world. It's connected in many ways to the real world, and there's a lot of engagement um, you know, for various reasons, with it. So I don't know. I, it presents opportunities. It's also challenging because our schedules are already full. Um, but I, I feel like this is this is part of. It's what I want to do in in the classroom. I want to teach in an integrated way where we're not. I'm not being told you are only the social studies guy and you can just talk about social studies. You know, no. I'd like to integrate a lot of things across the curriculum and and, and in STEM I can do that. And there's other places we can do that too, but.
2: Yeah. It's absolutely important that the kids, I mean, I'm so, I feel like I'm so passionate about the kids learning, you know, that they all need to be introduced to it and just, and feel like they, you know, they, they got to see if this is something they like, because yes, this is where our society is headed, you know, and um, absolutely. um I like the idea of integration, and I think I, that's the way everybody should teach. Yeah. Yeah, going off the integration thing, I teach first grade, and it seems that math and reading and writing have really taken like the top spot, and science and social studies are kind of being put on the back burner. And I love to teach science, and my kids love science; it's one of their favorites um, besides math. So I'm trying to figure out different ways to integrate science into their writing and into the other subjects, and. I it's it's really hard, especially with first graders, because you have to teach them all that technology first. And but I would love to incorporate more of it into the classroom, especially project based stuff with them.
0: Yeah. Well, on but like th-
2: you said, it's hard to teach everything and get it all in.
0: <laughs> I'm putting some pictures up of the kitchen chemistry unit that we did um, a couple weeks ago. My wife has just done these experiments this week. She teaches third and fourth grade, and uh, we there's a these guys are doing a um, uh color changing milk experiment with um some fat fatty vitamin D milk and some um co- some um, food coloring and then some soap they they that they put in and, and this actually has to do with the polarity of the molecules and this you know it it's an exciting experiment but there's science behind it right it's not magic and we were doing other things with soap it 's exciting to do experiments, and I think one of the tragedies that we need to remedy in education is that because of high stakes testing, just like you said, some schools have put out the science, put out the social studies, and they said we 're just doing literally reading and math, and that 's it and so you know taking the the um, uh, whatever, not corrosion, but uh, cleaning pennies with salsa like we were doing here, learning about vinegar and salt and chemical reactions. Kids love that stuff. And when we do those kind of experiments, it gives us chances to write about it and for for students to use academic vocabulary and scientific vocabulary. And, you know, my daughter's – and my youngest is in fourth grade. They haven't done an experiment all year. Zero. No experiments. So over spring break, guess what? We did the kitchen chemistry experiments at home. And, um, I think we're going to have to advocate as parents as well as, you know, educators to push for this kind of thing in our schools and to, and to push that pendulum back to say, look, testing is something we do, but it's not the purpose of education. Uh, we want to be engaging our kids, and and we want our kids to love science. How do you get them to love science? It's not by reading a chart in the textbook. It's by doing an experiment, and especially when they get to see things that surprise them and cause cognitive dissonance and get them asking questions and all those things. So um, the last thing I'll say about that is One of our teachers told me about Steve Spangler, and he has a great YouTube channel called Sick Science. He has tons of videos uh, about all kinds of experiments. He's in Denver and regularly is on their local news channel. And so anyway, just lots of the resources that we ended up using in our class for these experiments came from him. And uh, that's part of why it's great to be connected and great to great to share ideas because there's there's all kinds of wonderful resources out there for us to take advantage of and and then to connect with other educators that will keep sharing ideas. Anything else?
1: Well, I'm guessing Paul has something to say. He teaches, something.
3: <laughs> yeah, I've kind of been, been less loving all this. Uh, I completely agree with you. I my only question is. You know, in my own district, uh, the hurdles are the elementary teachers are so scared of the science because they have so few classes dealing with science in college that they have to take. You know, how can we encourage them to just, you know, get their foot in the door and and just start, you know, playing around with it a little bit, just incorporate some more science in, you know, because we've got – it, we don't have a STEM teacher necessarily, but my, my father's, you know, retired and, and he pretty much teaches what he wants and they brought him back to teach just science. And so he's, he does the, all the experiments, a lot of your STEM experiments, water rockets and, you know, the kitchen chemistry and he does all this stuff in his class at the fifth, fourth and fifth grade level. That's great. And you know they don't call it a STEM teacher, but you know, it, they need that. You're you're so right. It's it just it gets them interested in learning. You know, he was my favorite teacher when I was a kid because he he let us do hands-on things and learn about it. And you know, I read an article about uh, the vocabulary gap and how we can throw these things at these kids at a young age and they'll absorb it and they'll use it later on when they get to the, the older ages where they can you know regurgitate it and and use that as their basis to do higher order things. But, you know, what What ideas do you have to encourage those teachers who aren't comfortable or certified in that area to start using some of this?
0: So I've just had some conversations with uh, two different STEM teachers in our area, um, Amy Leffelholtz, who's our other grade four or five STEM teacher, and then um, a classroom third grade teacher in Midwest City, which is an eastern suburb of Oklahoma City, Christy Paradise, and she has a STEM club before school. They do something called Botball. We've got, I think, three different robotics programs that have competitions in our area First Robotics and there's one more. Um, both Amy and Christy say that the transformative thing for them was a summer professional development that they did about maybe seven years ago. That was two weeks long, and it was with University Partners. And they did all kinds of experiments. They were, um, you know, you know, experiencing a, an integrated science classroom as a student, and so that was the big turning point for them was this this professional development so i think ongoing professional development so that um you know teachers have chances to to experience what that's like to to have an integrated science and um i don't know if i'm losing my oh I, i did that wrong
3: are you guys well, still seeing that? Mate,
1: Jamie, Jamie just got back from a robotics competition in Connect. They do that there, so she, that's right up her alley. She loves
0: it. That's good. Well, this our robo- our
3: robotics have helped out in our district too a lot. Just to get the kids interested <sighs> in things, in the science and the engineering.
0: Yeah. Are you guys still seeing those pictures? The the other yeah, we okay. are. So this is my makers club. We started a an after school Wednesdays makers club. So um, we've got the kids doing Lego robotics. They're doing Minecraft Edu, which we just we started this year. Uh, water bottle rockets. Uh, we got a makey makey from scratch. That was something that the, that uh, one of my groups of boys created last week. And these are robotics. Then they're doing Code.org. So anyway, there's it's. After school has good affordances, right? There's chances for students to do things after school that they may not be able to fit in as readily. So I think that would be another part of the puzzle. In addition to professional development, you know, having a robotics club, having a maker's club, um, offering chances for kids to be able to, um, you know, create stuff, make things, um, and have have maybe a less structured environment than they would just during the regular school day. I, I think those... Those are good things. So we can, we can encourage those to happen. Before we'll change a statewide standards, you know, set or, you know, have a committee or whatever, we can say, hey, let's, let's have a, an after-school makers club or a robotics club and get some parents involved and, get, you know, get a teacher sponsor. So I think that's a, a part of the puzzle. Who paid for
1: your kids?
0: Um, I've borrowed them So uh, Amy Leffelholtz got a grant last year for the robotics uh, uh, kits and so I, I borrowed those about two weeks ago and we just have started using them so she's going to I think she's going to come over this next week um, and my, I enlisted my 16 year old who is a, a Lego master builder to help us figure out what to do with them and he found a website that has all these projects for the NXT one or whatever the model we have and so, we've been we have computers set up and kids have picked a project and then they've been building on it. But um, we're looking for grants. We want to, you know, apply to basically create a maker space and that was something I guess that I didn't I didn't put on here. I'll I'll add this, but there's a great book called Invent to Learn. It's by Sylvia Martinez and Gary Steger. Their website is inventtolearn.com. And it's about making, tinkering, and engineering in the classroom. And so it is filled with great resources, and um, they give workshops and conferences and awesome, awesome resource. And it's all about the maker movement, which is a big movement. There are maker fairs, started in San Diego in the Bay Area, and now I'm going to go to one in June in Kansas City, the last week of June, uh, downtown at Union Station. With my family, and um, you know, it's that's a lot of stuff happening outside of school. But there are ways that the maker movement and, and this whole idea of having students build stuff, create things, and tinker is things there are things that we can have them do in the classroom as well as in after school clubs and things like that.
2: Good.
1: Any any further questions? He certainly has a lot to talk about. I tell yeah, you. I have a final question. So uh, you said a STEM teacher. So there is a specific training for the teacher to classify it as STEM teacher?
0: Good question. Uh, no, not currently. Um, my background is, is is fairly unique. I uh, graduated from the Air Force Academy. And so I had taken a lot of science and engineering classes when I was an undergraduate. But we had techie majors and fuzzy majors. And I'm definitely a fuzzy major because I majored in political science and geography. Um, so, you know, I just needed to be certified as an elementary teacher in order to, to teach at our school. There's not a certification for STEM. But I, I think, uh, you know, having a passion and a love for the sciences and, and for hands-on learning um, and, um, you know, we're going to have some some standards, I'm sure, that are going to develop. The next generation science standards that um, have are being adopted by different states around the country and our state board, I think, just approved a, a version of those. We kind of... We kind of took uh, global warming and evolution out and put the name Oklahoma at the top and said, these are our new science standards. (laughs) Literally, that's what happened. Um, Those are much more focused on integrated science teaching and engineering design and pulling in STEM things. So, um, you know, as teachers become more familiar with those next generation science standards and um, we introduce those ideas of engineering design and building and and those things – Hopefully, we'll see, see more of that in teacher preparation programs. But at this point, um, they were interested in what my ideas were, uh, and I had worked in this district for the, the year and a half previous, uh, and part of that was with the STEM teachers. So I was pretty familiar with some of the things they had done and their philosophy and, and all of that, but didn't have a formal STEM preparation program. I got certified to teach elementary, so grades one through eight. And um, but I'm interested in all this kind of stuff. And now that I'm into it, you know, I'm plugged in with other teachers who are teaching this as well and sharing ideas and resources. So just kind of grows and builds on itself as we have those chances to network and collaborate. That's great. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: Okay, folks. Well,
0: I heard you were a quiet group, and you weren't. So that's good. Thanks for the questions. <laughs>
1: It is a nice change. It is, it is. Okay, thank you so much. I guess you can go home now. We're just thrilled. All right. That, um, it took the time to present to us. It's fascinating to listen to you talk.
0: Well, thank you all so much, and good luck with your course, and uh, stay in touch. Um, I'm W. Fryer on Twitter, and that's the best way to get a hold of me, although email Friars. works too. So.
1: Well, and, you know, now that Hawaii is using Twitter, she can, she can tweet you. Absolutely. As well as email you, and I have both those uh, uh, contact information available. So. Awesome. You never know. I'm
2: telling
0: you. That's right. That's right.
2: Thank you.
1: All right. Thank you're you very welcome. That.
0: Thank you all. Yeah. Good night.
2: Thanks.
3: Thanks. Good night.
2: Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. You're listening to Fuel for Educational Change Agents, an audio podcast channel, including a variety of audio recordings by and recorded by Wesley Fryer published for educators worldwide interested in free, audio-based professional development. This is a supplementary podcast channel complementing Moving at the Speed of Creativity podcast, which typically includes longer and lightly edited or unedited audio recordings. Learn more and access these podcasts on audio.speedofcreativity.org. All content on this podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 United States license.